Would you turn uh, in your Bibles to the book of Hosea? As Calum said, we're continuing our studies in the book of Hosea. You have the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, and then you have the book of Hosea, the first of the minor prophets. So if you come after Isaiah, Jeremiah, uh, Ezekiel, and Daniel, you'll find Hosea. And we're turning to Hosea uh, chapter 8. So Hosea chapter Uh, 8 and verse 1, set the trumpet to your lips. One like a vulture is over the house of the Lord, because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. To me they cry, my God, we Israel know you. Israel has spurned the good. The enemy shall pursue him. They made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not. With their silver and gold they made idols for their own destruction." I have spurned your calf, O Samaria. My anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence? For it is from Israel a craftsman made it. It is not God. The calf of Samaria shall be broken in pieces. For they sow the wind and shall reap the whirlwind. The standing grain has no heads. It shall yield no flower. If it were to yield, strangers would devour it. Israel is swallowed up. Already they are among the nations as a useless vessel. For they have gone up to Assyria, a wild donkey wandering alone. Ephraim has hired lovers. Though they hire allies among the nations, I will soon gather them up, and the king and princes shall soon writhe because of the tribute. Because Ephraim has multiplied altars for sinning, they have become to him altars for sinning. Were I to write for him my laws by the ten thousands, they would be regarded as a strange thing. As for my sacrificial offerings, they sacrifice meat and eat it, but the Lord does not accept them. Nor uh, he will remember, sorry, now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. They shall return to Egypt. For Israel has forgotten his maker and built palaces, and Judah has multiplied fortified cities. So I will send a fire upon his cities, and it shall devour her strongholds. Amen. And we know God will always bless the reading of His own inspired Word. If you would keep your Bibles open just to follow along with the references, that would be very helpful. Uh, In 1964, the then British uh, Prime Minister Harold Macmillan, in an election uh, speech made to the country, told the British people, you have never had it so good. However, within a few years, Britain was plunged to the edge of economic ruin. Unemployment rose to new levels. Factories were blighted by industrial action. Exports dropped. Imports spiraled as people refused to buy the shoddy workmanship of the nationalized industries. And as a result, factories closed. Economists now tell us that the country was experiencing a deep depression. And yet, just a few years before, the prime minister said, you have never had it so good. The historians will now point out that all the signs indicating economic disaster were there, but the government and the nation refused to listen to the warnings. Now, the same thing was happening in 8th century Israel, 8th centuries, that is, before Christ. The proverbial feel-good factor was in place. Israel never had it so good. 
Uh, politically, she had entered into an alliance with the most powerful nation uh, in the world, Assyria. Uh, religiously, new shrines were building up everywhere to cope with the increased interest in spiritual uh, matters. And materially, the building industry was experiencing an economic boom with the demand for larger and more elaborate homes. So, if you look politically at verse 9, we are told, for they have gone to Assyria, a wild uh, donkey wandering uh, alone. So, they'd entered into this alliance with Assyria. Um, religiously, verse uh, 11, and there's a little uh, difference in the translation of verse 11. Uh, the ASV reads, because Ephraim has multiplied altars for sinning. I think that should read as the NIV reads, uh, uh, Ephraim has multiplied uh, altars for sin offerings. So, these shrines were springing up everywhere. And then materially, if you look at verse 14, we're told, uh, for Israel has forgotten his maker and built palaces, and Judah has multiplied uh, 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 her stronghold. So, politically, religiously, and material. Israel never had it so good. She prospered. That elusive uh, feel-good factor that Rishi Sunak hopes is in place before the next election was in place in 8th century Israel. The only cloud on the horizon were the two prophets, Amos and Hosea, who warned that all was not as rosy as they thought it was politically, religiously, and materially, that prosperity did not mean security. And in this chapter, Hosea demolishes Israel's sense of security and warns of future political, economic, and spiritual disaster. And I want you to notice three things this morning. The warning extended the problems examined, and the reasons explained. So, first of all, then, the warnings extended. Look uh, how the chapter opens in verse 1. Set the trumpet to your lips. One like a vulture is over the house of the Lord, because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. Now, the trumpet in the ancient world was equivalent to the air raid siren in the Second World War. When it sounded, danger was at hand. An enemy had been sighted. A vulture was over the house of the Lord. Now, in Hebrew, that word could either be rendered as vulture, as the SV renders it, or eagle, as the AV and the NIV uh, translates it. The idea is similar for both birds are flesh-eating birds of prey. The difference is this. The uh, eagle swoops down unexpectedly and kills its prey. The vulture picks over the bones of a dead uh, animal. Now, if Hosea intended to use the picture of the uh, vulture, he is saying that Israel's uh, uh, judgment and collapse is even more serious than they, uh, they thought, because the judgment has passed, Israel has died, and uh, the vultures coming to pick over the bones. You'll notice in verse 8, uh, the past tense is used. Israel, notice this, is swallowed up. Already they are among the nations. 
So whatever bird Hosea has in mind, the eagle waiting to pounce or the vulture waiting to pick over the bones of Israel, he says that Israel is on the brink of disaster. Now, from verses 9 and 10, we know that the bird of prey that would devour Israel was the mighty Assyrian nation. Look at verse 9, for they have gone up to Assyria, a wild donkey, wandering alone. Ephraim has hired lovers. Though they hire allies among the nations, I will soon gather them up, and the king and princes shall soon rise because of their tribute. Now, that uh, expression, kings and princes, is translated in the NIV as the mighty king, but in the authorized version, it's translated the king of princes. And that's probably the correct translation because king of princes was a title that was given to the, the emperor of Assyria, that he was the king of kings or the king of princes. That was his official title. In the latter part of Hosea's ministry, Assyrian aggression began to stir, and Hosea knew that it was just a matter of time before this emperor, the king of princes, man called Tiglath-Pileser III, would swoop in Israel, incorporate it into his ever-expanding empire. This would be a blow of devastating proportions, a blow from which Israel would never recover. The ten uh, tribes that made up northern Israel would disappear forever. Look at the end of verse 13. We're told at the end of verse 13, they shall return to Egypt. I don't think that's to be taken literally. But Israel would once again experience the bondage, the hardship, the subjection, the oppression that she knew 500 years before when God first had delivered her out of Egypt. Once more, she would be without a land, without a king, and without an identity. God was going to turn back the clock half a millennium, and Israel would spiritually return to square one. She would return to her position of an immigrant slave, but this time her master would be Assyria. Now, I suppose economic and uh, political pundits uh, would have ha given their own reasons for the devastation that was about to fall, the might and uh, invincibility of the Assyrian uh, army and nation might be blamed or the expansive uh, intentions of Tiglath-Pileser III. But Hosea sees the reasons for, in, uh, for collapse purely in terms of internal and spiritual reasons. Look again at verse 1. Set the trumpet to your lips, one like a vulture is over the house of the Lord, because here's the reason... Here's the explanation, because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. That's the reason. That's the cause. Look at verse 7, for they sow the wind, and they shall reap the whirlwind. In this world, we sow what we reap. And if Israel had put her trust in something as empty and as ethereal as the wind, as the Assyrian army, or as their own uh, political ingenuity, they were going to reap the whirlwind. Sowing is a process that involves multiplication. So one seed, you produce many seeds. 
And in this proverb, as one commentator says, deed is seed which is multiplied in in the harvest. And Israel had lived independently. She had found her, uh, she had formed her own alliances. She was living a, a, a life without God, and God was going to send a whirlwind to consume them. So this terrible disaster that would overtake Israel had spiritual roots. They had forsaken the covenant and rebelled against God's law. And their book in a brew among the men the other night, there was a quote in Paul Tripp's book that somebody highlighted in our particular group, which said, a person who is spiritually blind is blind even to their own blindness. A person who is spiritually blind is blind even to their own blindness. And that was true of Israel. She couldn't see the predicament that she was uh, in, the warning extended. The second thing I want you to notice is the problem examined. What was it then? What was the problem? What was the reason uh, which caused this spiritual malaise and this, uh, this uh, condition uh, in Israel? Well, in verse 14, uh, Hosea says that Israel had pushed God to the fringes of national life And in spite of all the religious activity, she had forgotten God. Look at verse 14. For Israel has forgotten his maker and built palaces, and Judah has multiplied fortified cities. She had forgotten God. She had left God out. She had pushed God out. She had pushed God to the fringes of her existence. Now, it's not that she had forgotten who God was or that she had become so engrossed in uh, this love affair with the false god Baal that she no longer knew Yahweh's identity or His name. Israel was still going through all the hypocrisy of pretending to have a meaningful relationship with God. Look at verse 2. To me they cry, my God, Israel, know you. My God, we know you. That may have been a line from one of the formal liturgies that was recited at the many shrines, or perhaps it was a, a spontaneous ejaculation from a charismatic enthusiast in the congregation. My God, we know you, they would say. It sounded so spiritual. But in reality, in the way that she lived, in the way that she worshipped, in the things that she depended upon, she had forgotten God. And what Hosea does is he, he, in this prophecy, produces three pieces of evidence to prove that Israel had forgotten God. Notice, first of all, she had forgotten God politically and so lived independently. Look at verse 4. They made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I, I knew it not. In the southern kingdom, the two tribes in the south, in Judah, they remained loyal to the house of David, and they always had a, a descendant of David sitting on their throne. But when the northern kingdom was set up, it was might is right. Anybody could become king. And high office within Israel had become the object of incessant political intrigue as one conspirator after another hacked his way to the throne. 
In fact, of the six kings that ruled during this time, only one died of national uh, of natural causes. Coup after coup disrupted the nation as one king replaced another. It never occurred to them. It never entered into their heads to seek for divine guidance on the appointment of a king. They made their kings, but not through me. My God, they said, we know you. But did they know him and seek him when it came to the appointment of a king? Not at all. They lived their lives, they made their decisions as if God wasn't there and as if they didn't know the true and living God. Israel was supposed to be a theocracy ruled by God, and yet she behaved as if God wasn't there. They had forgotten God. What they said on the shrine, my God, we know you, wasn't worked out in their political life. She had forgotten God politically. She lived independently as if God wasn't there. Secondly, she had forgotten God religiously. She worshipped inappropriately. Look at verse 11 again. Because Ephraim has multiplied, and I think this should read, Ephraim has multiplied altars for sin offering. They have become to him altars for sinning. They just set up an altar in the name of Yahweh anywhere they wanted, anywhere that was convenient, anywhere that was close. Religion was booming. Shrines were springing up. Uh, There was such a demand for stained glass windows, for altars, for clerical vestments. The shrines were packed with ardent, devoted worshipers. Look at verse 13. As for my sacrificial offerings, they sacrifice meat and eat it. Notice my sacrificial offerings. These are uh, offerings that are made to, to Jehovah. And the people attended consistently, prayed fervently, gave generously, worshipped regularly. What could possibly be wrong with any of these things? But Hosea says it's an indication of spiritual decay. He says at the end of verse 13, but the Lord does not accept them. The Lord does all these sacrifices. The Lord does not accept them. He says in verse 11, all these altars that you've built have become altars for sinning. You actually sin by sacrificing. You sin by worshiping. You sin by using them. Now, why was that? Well, look at verse 4. Once again, they made their kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not. With their silver and gold, they make idols for their own destruction. I have spurned your calf, O Samaria. And I remember Samaria is the capital of northern Israel. It's the equivalent to Jerusalem. My anger burns against them. How long will they, uh, will they be incapable of innocence? For it is from Israel. A craftsman made it. It is not of God. The calf of Samaria will be broken in pieces. 
So when Jeroboam I set up the northern kingdom in opposition to the house of David, the ten tribes in the north, he was worried about all these people trooping down annually to Jerusalem, to the temple, or to the tabernacle, and then to the temple to, to worship. And so he took two calves, and he put one in Bethel, and he put one in Dan in northern Israel, one in the north and one in the south, and he said, behold your God. He wasn't intending to uh, have an idol for them to worship. He said, this is the God that brought you out of Egypt. Uh, Worship Him there. In fact, some scholars argue that these calves that were erected were actually plinths on which the invisible God was said to rest and to live, much as He lived in the um, Ark of the Covenant in the temple uh, in Jerusalem. And He said, behold your God. But you see, that little departure, that tiny departure from the Word of God for, for the worship of God introduced a corruption into the worship of the nation of Israel. They, they, they set up these, these uh, gods with no reference to what God had said in His Word, what God had revealed in His Word, and what God had said in His Word. Behold your gods. You don't have to go down to Jerusalem. Here are the gods. Here are calves. The invisible God dwells with these calves. Worship Him. And all these shrines and all were springing up, but springing up independently from God. God had never sanctioned them. And there is this misconception, I think, that pervades the evangelical church that worship is a free-for-all, that it doesn't matter how you worship as long as you uh, worship God and you can do whatever you like in worship. No, no, no. God has the right to determine how He is to be worshipped. In fact, God has revealed in His Word how He is to be worshipped. Worship's not a free-for-all. When you think about it, how arrogant of man to say, I'll worship in the way that I like according to my preferences and tastes. Because it's God who is the object of that worship, and God has the right to determine how He is to be worshipped. Remember hearing the story of Eric Alexander, who was the minister in the Tron there at the center of Glasgow, and he recommended a certain church to uh, one of his uh, students that was going off to university uh, in England. And when he came back, Eric said to him at half term, he said, did you go to that church? And he says, yeah. He says, I did, but uh, I didn't stay. I got nothing out of the worship. And Eric Alexander put his arm around him and said, well, I thought it was God that was supposed to get something out of the worship. Worship's not for you. Worship's for God. And you must worship in the way that God has revealed that He ought to be worshipped. I think that's an important point. So, Israel uh, lived, um, uh, uh, forgotten God politically. She had forgotten God uh, religiously. And she had forgotten God when it came to her own security. She rested in her own ability. Oh, God, we know you, they would say. But look at verse 14, for Israel has forgotten his maker 
and built palaces. That word conveys the idea of not only a big place, but a secure place. Judah has multiplied fortified cities. So with this growing threat, who did Israel return to, or or turn to? Did they return to the true and living God? No, they put their trust in their own uh, political ingenuity and military strength. She put her strength in herself. Uh, When it came to uh, uh, national security. We're told in in verse 9 that she entered into an alliance with Assyria, the one that would ultimately destroy her, for they have gone up to Assyria, a wild donkey wandering alone. Interestingly enough, the word for wild donkey is very similar in Hebrew to the name for Ephraim, the dominant northern tribe, and Hosea said, you're an ass. That's what he's saying. You're an ass. He says, you've gone up to Assyria, and those are the very people, the very people that are going to destroy you. In fact, he picks up the metaphor that's so common in Hosea and says that uh, you have uh, hired lovers, this idea of prostitution, but instead of Ephraim being paid for her services, she pays her lovers to be unfaithful with. So, in this grave national crisis, does Israel turn to God? No, she rests in her own abilities and her large fortified buildings and entering into alliances with nations that would ultimately destroy her. My God, we know you. But in the midst of national crisis, they didn't turn to the one who could save them, who could deliver them, who could protect them. Israel had forgotten God. They lived independently, forgotten Him politically. They worshipped inappropriately. They'd forgotten Him religiously. They trusted in their own ability. When it came to her security, they forgot Him. Let me ask you then the question, have you forgotten Him? Have you pushed Him to the fringes of of your life. You, you go through all the, uh, the outward um, uh, manifestations of commitment. You too cry, my God, we know you. We, we love you. But you live independently from Him. You live as if He didn't exist. You make your decisions uh, about university, about the future, about employment, about where you live without even a prayer ascending to His throne. You worship inappropriately. Never occurred to you that you are to worship in the way that that God demands that He should be worshipped. Our God is a consuming fire, says the writer to the Hebrews, and those who worship must worship Him in reverence and awe. He's not your pal. He's a great God of heaven. You trust in your own ability. When problems come into your life, you run about like a headless chicken to this one and to that one, even to to those that you have no relationship with, and it never occurs to you to seek the living God. Have you forgotten God? Have you pushed God to the fringes of your life? Are you sowing to the wind? The warning extended. 
The last thing I want you to notice is, is uh, quickly, the, the reason explained. We must ask ourselves, how did the nation of Israel get herself into such a dreadful spiritual condition? How could she possibly forget the one who had done so much for her in the past, delivering her out of Egypt and bringing her into the promised land? Well, the, the answer is given to us in verse 12. Were I to write for him my laws by the ten thousands, they would be regarded as a strange thing. Now, that ten thousands is, um, is right. The, the NIV, I, I wrote for them many things, many things. It translates it as many things, but they uh, rejected them as something uh, foreign. The authorized versions, I've written to him the great things of my law, but it's ten thousands, but it's hyperbole. It's a bit like a girl in the Balamoni church when you were away for Sunday. You asked her how many were there, and she says, oh, hundreds. The place was packed, but the church only held 150 people, you know, but there were hundreds, or, or there, you know, there were millions of people in Belfast, you know, and the population of uh, Northern Ireland is only a million and a half. You know, it's, it's hyperbole. And God is saying that He, he wrote for His people 10,000 words, 10,000 laws. He gave them all that they needed. Now, you'll notice that the NIV uses the future tense, or the ESV uses the future tense, were I to write for him my laws. But it is the imperfect tense, which is God had given them. He had given them. And through Amos and Hosea and the prophets, he continued to give his word. He continued to give his, his law. And, and what had happened? They counted that law as foreign, literally foreign, or strange. So they would rather go to foreign nations for security, or strange nations for security, or bring strange practices into the worship of God, rather than turn to His law, which, which is His law that He had multiplied to them and given to them over and over again. That they… they, they they regarded the law of God as something strange. Amos calls it, in his prophecy, a famine of the Word of God. There was a famine of the Word of God. Now, it wasn't that they hadn't got the Word of God. There were 10,000, millions and millions of references to the law of God. They had the law of God. But the explanation of the famine of the Word of God lay in their own hearts that they didn't want the Word of God. They had spiritual anorexia. They didn't imbibe. They didn't consume the Word of God. They ignored the Word of God. Why did they make their own decisions about kings? Because they ignored the teaching of Scripture? Why did they introduce their own novelties into worship? Because they ignored the teaching of Scripture. Why did they turn to pagan nations for help and not to God because of their ignorance of Scripture? That's the explanation. That's the reason why. They, they, they uh, treated the Word of God as an alien thing, as a foreign thing, as a strange thing. That does seem strange to us, 
that you can have the worship of the true and living God, that you could have a Christian community and a Christian church that isn't controlled and dominated and molded by the Word of God. That's all around us. I've been at services and the Bible isn't even opened and the Bible isn't even read. Never mind explained. I was reading of, uh, or Gail was telling me about a leading church in, in a America, a well-known evangelical church who have two pastors, a husband and a wife, which is a problem in itself. But then they're, they're talking about, they're talking about um, the, whether or not you should accept homosexual couples in the membership when they apply for membership. And their explanation was, and in, uh, in Malachi, God says, I hate divorce, and if He hates divorce, then it must be all right for those couples to come into membership. Twisting the Word of God in order to make it say what they want it to say. Folks, there's, there's a famine in the land, a famine of the Word of God. Increasingly, Churches are loosening their links to the Scriptures, and they're focusing on experience, and all that matters is what I think, what I want, and what I desire. And that's why they reap the whirlwind, and that's why the ten tribes of northern Israel were sunk and disappeared off the map, because they ignored the plain teaching of Scripture. Uh, it's, it's my plea to you as a church, as a church, that you must always keep the Word of God central to the life of the church, that this church must be uh, uh, Word-centered and Word-driven, that there, there, there should be no famine of the Word of God when it comes to this church, that He has that the Word of God never to us is a strange thing or a foreign thing or an alien thing, but that we love the Word, we embrace the Word, and we keep the Word central to the life of the church. And that's true of us individually too, that you can do what you like, you can live as you please, as, uh, uh, as long as you suppress the Word of God and ignore the Word of God and drive God to the fringes of your thinking. They have forgotten me. I hope and pray that in all the decisions that you take and all the choices that you make in life that you haven't forgotten God, but that you keep God right at the center of your life and your heart. Amen.